Good morning, Foothills Church. Welcome. I want to welcome those of you who are watching with us at our Knoxville location and those of you who are watching online. Man, I'm so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, Anybody tired from eating too much this weekend? Anybody at all? Okay. Uh, Anybody just like coming in here a little bit tired today, both locations? Anybody? I know it's been a long weekend. You've been with your family all weekend. I know that can be a little bit exhausting, right? Uh, But I'm glad that you made it here with us. Uh, My name's Landon. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here and I, I get the privilege of leading our communications team, and our guest experience team. Uh, These are the folks who are at the tents, who are in the wind and in the rain and in the snow, parking cars and helping you guys in here. Can we just put our hands together at both locations for our guest experience team? And we love you guys. Thank you guys for all that you do. But I get the privilege to lead that team um, here at our church, and I'm so excited to share with you all uh, today. Uh, I'm also thankful for Pastor Trent and just getting the opportunity to, to speak up here this morning and share with you all uh, something that God's really placed on my heart today. And so we do hope you had a happy, happy Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, this is kind of our first uh, post-pandemic Thanksgiving. It kind of felt like it was back to normal a little bit this year. Now, I know there's still plenty of sickness out there and there's COVID and the flu and RSV and all the things going around. But for me, this really felt like, uh, really kind of felt like the, the first kind of normal Thanksgiving after the pandemic. And, you know, when you think about some of the, the, the holiday gatherings we had during COVID pandemic, there was a lot of awkwardness, okay? There's a lot of awkwardness, like, were you, are you vaccinated? Are you not? Did you get tested? Were you exposed before you came here? And mom's like, yeah, I went to Kroger to get a turkey. Of course I was exposed. You know, there's just all kinds of things that you just didn't talk about, right? You know, and I, I'm used to I'm used to awkward family gatherings. I come from a blended family, meaning my parents got remarried. But we're not just like the like a blended family. We're like the whole Bed Bath and Beyond aisle of blenders in my family. Like we got blended families here, there, and, and so I'm used to awkward family gatherings. Like I, I, my family growing up, it was like my grandpapa sitting next to my grandpa who were both married to grandma. Okay. Like that type of family awkwardness. But you know, I don't know if your family is a little bit awkward and, and maybe you don't really enjoy going to your family gatherings. Like we can be honest about that in church today. Um, but I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but, but you know, really during the whole COVID stuff, there was all kinds of a little bit more tension around family gatherings. Like, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna are we gonna meet together? Are we gonna do it virtual? Are we gonna be outside? Uh, you know, what? How are we gonna do family gatherings during the pandemic? And I know your family probably made a certain decision that might have been different than mine or different than somebody else's. And we were all just trying to figure it out, right? We're just trying to figure out how can we love our families, celebrate the holidays, and be safe and do the right thing. We're all just trying to figure it out. Well. We had a pretty awkward family Christmas gathering. Um, we decided that because right in the middle of peak of one of the waves that we weren't going to get together indoors as we usually do. Uh, we decided that we were going to gather together and we were going to meet outside. Well, the only problem with that was it was like 30 degrees and rainy. Okay. And so like the grass was soaked. So, so we didn't want to meet at one of our houses where we could just meet in the backyard. Uh, so we decided to go to a parking lot. 
Okay, random parking lot. Um, random parking lot, and we all just kind of brought our cars around and, uh, and turned our heat on. And then we literally took the family Christmas tree and put it in the center of the, of the parking lot. Okay, um, and, and, and it just so happened that it was really, really cold that day, and I had a newborn at the time. And then a family member, whom shall remain nameless, all right, decided that she would show up 45 minutes late and let us all just sit there in it. Uh, praise God for that. Um, you know, so that was a little bit of an awkward moment. And so what I want to do today is I want to take us back to an awkward family dinner. I want to take us back to an awkward gathering, an awkward supper. And the reason why I want to take us back to this famous family dinner is because this lesson right here, this text, this scripture is actually the text that God used to teach me the hardest lesson that God has ever taught me. The hardest lesson that God has ever taught me. And I'll be honest with you, 100% transparent this morning. I've never, outside of the, the 9 a.m. experience here today, I've never taught on this before. I've never shared the story from stage that I'm going to share with you guys today. I've never shared this before. And it's not because it's something that I just found out. It wasn't that, it wasn't because I didn't go to seminary long enough. I mean, I went to Christian school growing up. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary, got my master's. I mean, I kind of did all the things. And it wasn't like this is like some brand new revelation that God just like delivered on tablets to me. But it was something that the Lord, I felt, needed to personally teach me. And there's no lesson been in sports my whole life, been, you know, done all kinds of different things, but there's no lesson that's ever been harder for me than this. And it literally changed me, but I fought against it for so, so long. But in order for me to explain it to you, I need to take you back to an awkward family dinner in the scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 13. If you don't, We'll be sure and have it on screen here today on the TV screen with us. But we're back in John chapter 13. Now let's have a reminder here. In John, the gospel of John is a part of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now these are eyewitness accounts of people who walked, talked, and did ministry with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is an eyewitness account that John is going to be delivering to us today. And, and the account today comes from a story that you might know as this, the Last Supper. Now, the Last Supper was when the disciples gathered in the upper room. It was in the final few days of the life of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples get together in the room and they have the Last Supper. Now, this is an awkward family dinner. I'll tell you why here in just a moment. But when you think of the Last Supper, I bet you, you probably think of Leonardo da Vinci's, uh, his, his Last Supper portrayal here. And so, you know, as you kind of look at it here, you kind of got the, the kind of the Americanized long table. You have, uh, you have the bread and the juice and the disciples are all gathered there and Jesus is in the center. 
They're all kind of talking. But let me tell you what's going on here at this little spiritual family dinner, okay? First off, there is an argument that breaks out. There's an argument that breaks out amongst the disciples. Now, I bet there was no arguments that broke out at your family this weekend, okay? But basically, the disciples begin to argue amongst themselves. And they have this, this conversation, they're going back and forth, and they begin to just kind of bicker and battle like the kids at the kids' table, okay? And, and so they're going, and they're trying to determine who is going to be the best and who's going to be the first in the kingdom of heaven. So they're arguing over silly stuff. And then, then Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which was just groundbreaking. Uh, and, and, and then he, he, he prophesies his own death burial and resurrection. And, 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 and then, and then he, even, he, he, he even institutes the Lord's Supper and says, this is the, 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 the bread that will be the body and the juice that will be my blood and you'll take it and we won't have this again until we meet again in paradise. And so there is just a lot going on in this passage. Oh yeah, not to mention, he even says, Peter, you're gonna deny me. So everybody's looking around. I mean, there is chaos. There is confusion. There is utter disarray happening at the table. It is a tension-filled moment. And what we see here is there's a lot going on, but Jesus has one more big announcement that's about to take place. So if you have your Bibles, go with John 13, verse 21. So Jesus speaks up and he says this. After saying these things, Jesus troubled in his spirit. Now remember, the tension in the room. It's getting a little bit more complex. Things are happening and Jesus is troubled in his spirit. And he testified, I meaning he spoke up and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you sitting at the table will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke of. So I want you to kind of put yourself in the room for a moment. I want you to feel this moment. I want you to imagine your father gets you around the table and your dad says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to die soon. And you might, you might have an older father and you may know this time is coming and it's very sad, but, but he's not saying I'm just going to die. He's saying, I'm actually, I'm going to be killed. And I'm not just going to be killed. I'm going to be killed by one of you. So imagine you're sitting at the table and now you're looking around. Who's it going to be? Is he going to kill him? Is he going to kill him? I always imagine my little brother would try to kill him, but not, not today. So you're looking around, you're trying to figure it all out. Who is going to kill and betray Jesus? And they're looking around. The tension begins to rise in this awkward family dinner. It's no longer just a sad or melancholy moment. It is a moment that is filled with chaos, panic, uncertainty, question of who it will be. The table is in utter disarray. And then in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table. Now, I love this addition to the narrative because if you know anything about the New Testament, John, the writer of the gospel of John was actually referring to himself in this passage. So I don't know if you have a sibling like that, who's like, you know, I, I'm the one mom loves. I'm the one dad loves. I am the favorite. Well, John decided as he wrote his eyewitness account that the detail that you all needed to know in the middle of the upper room experience when Jesus is about to be denied and betrayed and handed over to the priest, he wanted you guys to know that all the others, 
I'm the one who Jesus loved. I love that little bit of freedom he took there. But, but and so you got to know this. This isn't even the last time that, that he says it. He, he goes on to say it even more. And so we know this, that he refers to himself like that. In church history, we remember him as the beloved disciple. He's the beloved disciple. Now, I, I, just think about how, how kind of odd this is. Again, all these big things are happening in John's life. Hey, don't forget. It's me. I'm the one Jesus loves. So why is that? Well, if you know anything about John, you know he's one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, but he was also a part of Jesus's inner circle. He had a close and intimate relationship with Jesus. And it was Peter, James, and John that specifically Jesus decided to further invest his life into these three. And so John had a very special relationship with Jesus. So you think about it. He was brought onto the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus be transfigured when all the other disciples outside of the inner circle were not. He was the first, one of the first people to know about the resurrection of Jesus. And he was the only disciple when every other disciple ran away from the cross when Jesus was about to die, he stayed at the cross. He was the one who Jesus loved. Now, he had a special relationship with Jesus and the text says that he was reclining at the side of Jesus. Now, when you think of the Last Supper, again, you think of Da Vinci's recollection of it. You think of Da Vinci's, the way he, he portrayed that, everybody's kind of sitting at the table, but what would have been, that would have been a more, uh, you know, that would have been a more culturally appropriate for Da Vinci, not for Jesus' time. So a more Jewish way of doing it would have been more like this, that there was a table on the floor and they would literally sit in the floor. So less like Thanksgiving table and more like you're sitting in the bonus room with your kids eating pizza and watching a movie. They are all gathered around and he says he's reclining at the side of Jesus. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Let's imagine one of these, these, these are Jesus here. And so if you're reclining at the side of Jesus and, and what the, the Greek actually translated is that he's laying his head on his bosom, on his chest. So this might seem odd, or inappropriate to you in today's modern context, but in a Jewish context, this would have been completely normal, but it did denote that Jesus and John were close. So it wouldn't have been odd or inappropriate, but it would have just denoted that they were close. And so think about this, when he's reclining on the chest of Jesus, all he's really doing is kind of positioning his body back on the person who's behind him. And, and now he's very close to Jesus and he's able to kind of look up and speak to him without much movement at all. He's able just to kind of turn his chin, turn up to speak to Jesus, which is gonna be important for this next part here. So this is how they would have been reclining. So they're there, they're reclining back. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that the disciple leaning back, so John leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you, God? Who's gonna betray you, Lord? So Jesus answers in verse 26. Jesus answered, he said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread and when I have dipped it. So Jesus is talking to John here. He's not announcing this to the whole table because again, they're very in close proximity to one another. And he's talking and he says, the person I give this piece of bread to is gonna be the one who betrays me. So when he had dipped it and he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, 
the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas, entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Because remember, Jesus had only said this to John, special, close relationship. And in verse 29, it said, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, but what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Tension, chaos, confusion. The table is in utter disarray. Someone is about to betray Jesus and that someone is Judas. And we ultimately know Judas delivers Jesus to the chief priest to be crucified, to be killed, to be punished for something he did not do. But the question I can't get out of my head from this passage, and it's the thing that kind of jumps out, it's like, why is that there? Is this, why does John call himself the one Jesus loves? The one whom Jesus loves. Why does he call himself that? I mean, ask yourself this question. Like why in this moment does John put this little detail here? I mean, even, even in Knox right now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why is this here? Why does John call himself the one whom Jesus loves? And it's not just here either. He continues to reference himself this multiple times in the third person throughout his gospel. Or, or better yet, how even in the middle of all of this chaos is John resting so securely on the chest of Jesus. How can he be so secure in Jesus' love for John that he decides to tell everybody this in this one passage? I want you to ask yourself this. Well, there's really two possible answers here. Uh, the first possible answer is maybe Jesus loved John more than he does us. Maybe, maybe that's one of the, the answers, and that's certainly an answer. But if you understand anything about Christ in the scriptures, you know that this supposition is in correct because the scriptures are filled with references to, to God's infinite love for his people, something that we can't even comprehend. So it's not as if John is saying, hey, I'm a varsity Christian. You're JV over here. I'm the beloved disciple. You're just a regular guy. That, that doesn't make sense when you read the Bible and you understand the scriptures. So, so this answer, it, it really isn't an answer at all. It doesn't make sense at all. So the possible answer number two is, is this. Maybe John understood the love of Jesus more than us. Maybe he, he, he had a, a firmer grasp on how loved he was. You know, as we think about this, I want you to consider how unique John's gospel is. If you've ever read through the, the four gospels, you know that John kind of sticks out as a very different gospel. It, 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 it kind of shares stories that the others don't in their accounts. It even starts different. But I want you to think about this. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about how Jesus is Lord. They talk about how Jesus is God. They talk about how Jesus is human. But specifically in the gospel of John, in the gospel of John, the gospel of John references the humanity of Jesus more than any of the other 
three gospels. So we can summarize it like this. That he references the humanity of Jesus more than any of the other three gospels. So yes, every, all the other gospels, you know, believe and talk about how Jesus is fully God, fully man. But John specifically zeroes in on his humanity. Now, why is that? Well, let me show you a great example of how he does it. Uh, you know, in, in verse one, he kind of opens up with this Christological monologue and kind of gives this theological treatise about who Jesus is. And he says this in verse one. He says, in the beginning, the word, meaning Jesus, the word was with God and the word was God. Well, pretty simple right there. Here's who he believes Jesus is. And he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So from the beginning of the first chapter of the gospel of John, he wants everyone to know that Jesus is God. That is very simple, but I love how plainly he states it in verse 14. He goes on, he goes on a little bit further and says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. It is as if John wanted everyone to know from the beginning of his eyewitness account that I know Jesus is God, but I know Jesus wants to be with mankind because I've literally seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it for myself. I've been an eyewitness of how, how Jesus is God, but he also wants to be with man. He dwelled among us. So I'll summarize this like this. John witnessed the greatness of God and the closeness of God through his own personal relationship with Jesus. Now, theologically, okay, now uh, we're, we're going to get a little deep here and I need you to kind of follow this train of thought here or you might kind of lose it. So stay with me. All right. Theologically, this is what we know as the hypostatic union, meaning that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is not, he did not come to earth as a, as a man and leave his God status in heaven. No, as Jesus is walking around, as the eyewitness accounts report it, he is fully God and fully man. He is deity and humanity. It's what we know as the hypostatic union all at the same time. Now, the reason I bring this up today and the reason why I want to go deep here is because what I've learned is that most of us tend to see Jesus as one or the other. Now, you, that may, may confuse you, but let me, let me explain. Because what happens is when we do this, problems begin to pop up everywhere. In fact, I think that the reason why some of you are so tired trying to live the Christian life is because you get this wrong. I think the reason many of us are so anxious is because you get this wrong. I think the reason some of you feel shame over never being able to somehow please the God that it's because you get this wrong. And I'm not talking about intellectually, you don't believe this. Because I would say most of us who would call themselves Christians here today, like we intellectually believe this. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
I'm not talking about intellectually, but I want to know, does your soul know it full well? Now, let me, let me explain a little bit further. See, often here's what we do. If you think of Jesus only in his deity, you will become cold towards God. So there are, are people, and if you view Jesus as only some God in heaven who's looking down on you, who's judging you, who's telling you where you haven't measured up, you will miss John's Jesus. You see, some see Jesus as like a distant authority figure. Like we think he, he's, he's cool, but you know, he's kind of like the assistant principal. Like you, you think he's cool, but you don't want to get sent to his office when, when push comes to shove. And so he's kind of like this distant, like untouchable, like, like he's, you don't want to get in trouble with the deity. We see him only as distant and untouchable and nothing like us. Therefore, we'd better get our act together. We'd better fix ourselves. We better sew our fig leaves together because when God comes walking through the garden, we don't want him to see the mess we've made of our lives. And because of this, when we only see Jesus as deity alone, we become cold towards God and we become enveloped in the, I gotta be better. I gotta do better. He doesn't really love me. I know he, he loves me because he's got to, but I don't really think he likes me. And so it just becomes about being better, doing better, and getting our act together because we don't want to get on God's bad side. We become cold towards God. But the opposite is also true. If you think of Jesus only in his humanity, you will become lazy towards God. See, if you view Jesus as only someone who is there for you when you need it, there to be your safe space, there to be your ally, there to be your good moral teacher, then you will miss the Jesus that John knew firsthand. See, some view Jesus like they view like Dr. Phil. He's peace loving, he, he's soft spoken, he's a therapist, good moral principles that are generally beneficial if the world would follow them. Or he's like an Instagram influencer who's trying to convince his followers just to be kind and make the world a better place. But he is not God. And he's certainly not Lord to them. He tells you you're innately good. There's nothing you need to change. You're, you're, you're good. And because of this, there's no reason to live a holy life. There's no reason to repent. There's no reason to change. And you can define yourself as whatever you want to define yourself as because ultimately God is just like you. He's human. Jesus is human. But what John knew better than anyone else is that Jesus was fully deity, but loved humanity so much that he actually put on flesh and became humanity to dwell amongst John. He dwelled amongst John because he loved John and John saw it with his own eyes. He was close to it. And that's why he knew better than anyone else the truth of the gospel that he was the one that Jesus loves. We could, we could actually sum it up like this. See, when you realize when you realize that deity took on humanity, it will change your identity, just like it did for John. See, everything changed about John when he knew the love of Jesus. He wasn't just John. He was John, the one whom Jesus loved. See, this is the spiritual secret that John knew, the secret that allowed him to remain peaceful in the chaos, the secret that led him to stay when everyone else ran from the cross. He knew that no matter what happened at this awkward and, awkward and awful family dinner, 
that he was the one whom Jesus loves. And can I tell you the secret that, that John knew that you need to know too? It's my bottom line today. It's this, is that you are the one whom Jesus loves. That's your identity. You are the one whom Jesus loves. See, John knew this, that the most true thing about him was not that, that he was an apostle. The most true thing about John wasn't that Jesus called him a son of thunder. The most true thing about Jesus or the most true thing that John about John wasn't that he was some successful pillar in the early church. The most true thing about John was that he knew that he was the one who Jesus loved. And can I tell you today, the most true thing about you is that you are the one whom Jesus loves. The most true thing about you isn't how successful you are. The most true thing about you isn't about how many achievements you've attained. It isn't even how much of a sinner you are as you come in here today. The most true thing about you is that you are the one whom Jesus loves. And when you understand this, not on a purely intellectual level, but when your soul understands it, when your heart understands it, you too in the midst of chaos won't have anything to prove so much so that you'll be able to calmly lay your head on the chest of Jesus in the midst of the chaos, the confusion, and when the table was in utter disarray. See, I knew this. I knew this truth. I knew that I was the one Jesus loved. I knew that. I went to private Christian school. I went to Bible college. My mama, she rocked me as a baby, used to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I knew this, I knew this intellectually, but it hadn't sunk deep enough into my heart yet. And because of that, it led me to the hardest lesson that God has ever taught me. And I'll tell you, it was a difficult lesson. It was a lesson that, that really had several years of just pain in my heart. And I've never shared this before from stage outside of this morning but it was the hardest lesson. And here's where I found myself. I found myself sick, found myself anxious, and I found myself literally physically unhealthy. You know, growing up, growing up, I was never exceptional at anything. Um, like I, I, if you know my story, you know, um, my family is in the martial arts business. So I grew up being really good at that. But let's just say I wasn't exceptional at anything you guys would probably care about uh, or anything that actually made me look cool. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't great at football. I wasn't great at, I wasn't great at basketball. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, all the girls didn't want to date me in middle and high school. You know, I wasn't exceptional at really anything. Um, but one thing I was always good at growing up was talking. Uh, you can ask my mom. She would say oh, all, uh, over and over, do you ever shut your mouth? And the answer is no, I don't. Um, but I was never exceptional in anything. When I was 15 years old, my life was changed by the Lord. My life was changed by the Lord. And uh, shortly thereafter, God called me into full-time ministry. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this is what God had made me to do for him. I, I, was, I was called to preach. I was called to be in ministry. 
Well, when I was around 16, 17 years old, I got the opportunity. I went to a private Christian school. So we had, we had these, these things called chapels, which were basically like little church services for, for the private school kids, which were the worst. Um, and, and so one day I got the opportunity to preach. And so I remember, I can remember it so vividly. I walked, I, I preached, and by all estimations, I did a good job. I remember I walked into the lunchroom that day, and literally my friends started to clap for me, like the whole lunchroom clapped for me. Now, I'd never hit a buzzer beater. I'd never thrown a winning football pass. I'd never excelled in that way. But for the first time, someone clapped for me? I was good at this? I, I, I'd found something that I was made to do? And yes, I wanted to serve the Lord. And yes, I had, a, uh, I had a heart that was trying to follow after Jesus. But very soon thereafter, my identity became wrapped up into this thing I was good at as a 16-year-old. And everything in my world became about that. Well, a few years later, I was 20 years old, Pastor Trent invites me to go to lunch with him one day and he offers me a job to come on staff here at FC. And uh, basically they handed over the reins to a 20-year-old uh, youth pastor. Um, and uh, yeah, you can thank Pastor Greg for that. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we come in and, and that first year in student ministry here at the church, I was student pastor, um, we saw just God do some incredible things. I mean, our, our youth ministry, if you were a part of it serving at that point in time, I mean, we went from about 75 to 100 kids to, to 300 kids in, in a year. And kids were getting saved every single week. We were seeing baptisms and everything from the outside looked very successful, right? Oh, you, you, you're leading a growing ministry. This is so cool. And all of a sudden, you know, this identity that I had created as a 16-year-old just begins to get reinforced, right? Like, oh, this is successful. This is working. This is achieving. Wow, wow, wow. And all of a sudden, it became this little bubble in my head. Like, look how good you're doing. And it's all good until it wasn't. And then, you know, my, my version of success didn't keep happening. My version of success, you know, the metrics and the numbers and all the things didn't keep happening. And all of a sudden, I began to overwork myself. I begin to try to control things. I begin to stress. I begin to try to make my plan happen because if I didn't do that, if I wasn't successful anymore, what am I? If I'm not good at this, my whole identity was wrapped up in it. And I, as I begin to, to overwork and I begin to control and I begin to manipulate and do the things that, that I was trying to please God with, my soul began to crumble. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I, I got to a place in my life to where I was so anxious. I was probably depressed, honestly. I was so anxious. I was so depressed. I gained about 40 pounds. And I literally got to the place where all it would take is one email, one comment, one thing not to go my way, and I'd be vomiting all weekend long. It was excruciatingly painful. And I remember trying to figure this out with God. And I remember God taking me to this passage. And I sat in my office here at the Maryville location in our West building. I sat in my office and it was like a Tuesday morning. And I remember just weeping in my office. 
I remember just crying my eyes out because the Lord had brought me to a passage that I'd heard my whole life. It says this, cast your anxieties on him. Okay, yeah, we've heard that. Let go and let God. But here's why. Because he cares for you. Out of the billions of people who have joined this planet, who've been born onto planet Earth, he cares for me. He loves me. He wants to be with me. I don't have to be successful to be loved. I don't have to have the metrics to measure up in God's eyes. I just have to be for God to love me. I just got to sit there and be the one that Jesus loves. And this truth began to transform form my life. And I just want to tell you here today, you are the one who Jesus loves. John understood it. I'm still learning it. I understand it now, but you all have to learn this, not just on an intellectual level, but we have to learn it with our hearts that we are the one who Jesus loves. Jesus doesn't just love you. He actually likes you too. Isn't that crazy? I, yeah. Amen. I know you might have some kids who you love, you may just not like right now, but God loves you and he likes you. He cares about you. He wants to be with you and you can come to him because guess what? You are the one who Jesus loves. That is your identity. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So when you get this, that you are the one who Jesus loves, that becomes your identity. You are a deeply loved son of God. That is the most true thing about you. You're the, a deeply loved daughter of God. That is the most true thing about you. When you get this, your identity will change. And like John did, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, in utter disarray, he knew exactly who he was. You are the one whom Jesus loves. You don't have to control everything. You're the one Jesus loves. You don't have to prove anything. You're the one Jesus loves. You don't have to be anxious about everything. You're the one who Jesus loves. You don't have to be angry at everything. You are the one who Jesus loves. You don't have to be defined by the shame or the sin. And you don't have to be so tired because your identity is secure. If you know Jesus, you are the one whom Jesus loves. See, John knew it. And in the next few days, Jesus was gonna prove it to him. Because Judas would betray him, Peter would deny him, the disciples would run from him, and Jesus will die on the cross and rise again for him. So my question is, do you know in your heart that you are the one that Jesus loves? Is that your identity? Because when we get this, listen, everything changes. You know this, the world ain't getting any less crazy. A lot of experts are saying we need to lock in for a difficult year ahead. Maybe there'll be a recession, maybe there'll be a crash, maybe there'll be this and that. But here's what we know as the church. We know no matter what happens, as time goes on, things are gonna get more difficult for you and I as the church of Jesus Christ. 
It's just gonna get harder. Persecution's gonna increase. It's not gonna be the way that maybe it once was. Things are gonna get more difficult. Jesus warns us, Jesus tells us to expect it. But as the world gets more chaotic and awkward and awful, and as the enemy tries to steal your joy, to kill your marriage, to destroy your children and your grandchildren and your marriage and all of the, and all the things that maybe you hold so dear, as the world begins to unravel, you know where I want to be? Right on the chest of Jesus, secure in who I am, secure in his love for me. I want to, I want my head to be on the chest of the fully God and fully man heart that loved me on the cross. Because here's the deal. If we know the heart of God, if we know the heart of God, we too, like John, will be able to just securely lay our head on his chest. So are you tired today? Come lay your head down. Jesus is calling. Are you anxious today? Come, come on, he's ready. Are you frustrated today? Come lay your head down. Whatever it is, Jesus is calling us back to the throne of grace. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, it says this, for we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted just like you and me, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. As the world gets chaotic, we with confidence must draw near to Jesus. Why? Because you're the one who Jesus loves. He wants to be with you. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted that love of Jesus into your heart. Well, if you're hearing this today, I want you to know you too are the one who Jesus loves and he wants a relationship with you just like he had with John. And today at both of our locations, if, if you wanna speak to someone and say, I don't know if I have this figured out. I don't know if I'm truly following Jesus. I don't know if I know that Jesus loves me because of my sin and what I've done. You can go to one of our, uh, you can go to one of our prayer and care rooms in, in our, our atrium here at the Maryville location or right in the cafeteria there in, at the Knoxville location. We have folks who wanna meet with you and help you do that. For those of us who are Christians in the room, I wanna challenge you. Come back to the throne of grace because that's where you're gonna find your identity, just like John did. Because you are the one whom Jesus loves. Let's pray together. Father, may this truth go past our stubborn head knowledge and sink deep into our heart knowledge. And may we begin to identify not by our achievements 
and not by our metrics or not by whatever else we've decided to identify with. But may we identify fully with your your son's finished work on the cross. May we know the most true thing about us is God's love, your love for us. And may that change how we live and work and worship and serve. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, may this truth penetrate our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.